All right, everyone. So um, welcome to Grand Rounds for today. We're actually getting close to the end of our academic year. I know the sun is out, the weather is nice. I appreciate you guys being here, though. I think today is going to be an excellent, um, an excellent presentation. So it's really my pleasure to, um, to invite today to present um, Dr. Ryan Ribasecki. So Ryan is um, a pharmacist at University of Pittsburgh. Um, he is working in the cardiothoracic ICU and sort of manages all things cardiothoracic ICU and ECMO, both VV and VA ECMO. Um, and with him is a, a probably a familiar face for many of you, so Dr. Pablo Sanchez. Um, Dr. Sanchez is also up at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, the two of them have recently published uh, an article on the best anticoagulation strategy in ECMO, um, and it was published in Critical Care Medicine. And so I asked them to come here and talk about their work. Um, it's really nice to have you both here. Ryan, thank you so much. I hear you're going to lead the conversation today. Um, Pablo, thanks for joining us, and I really look forward to um, hearing your work. Thanks a lot for the introduction, Andy. And as she said, um, I'll do the majority of the talking here, but feel free, Pablo's on the line. So if anyone has other questions for him, I'm sure he'll be happy to answer at the end. Um, so as Andy mentioned, today I'm going to be discussing some anticoagulation controversies and extracorporeal life support. Um, I know she mentioned we did just publish that paper, but I'm going to expand on that and talk about a little bit of the other literature that's currently out there. Um, so just to get started, I do have, as long as it will move for me, um, nothing to disclose. It can come along. Is that moving on your end? Not yet. So just try clicking on the screen, maybe. Yeah. All right. There. Okay. Um, nothing to disclose, though I will be discussing some off-label indications since bivalorudin is not approved for this utilization. The three learning objectives I've set out are relatively loose, but primarily I wanted to describe the PK and PD differences of bivalorudin and unfractionated heparin, as well as interpret all of the published literature. I should really put a big asterisk next to all because there's way too much out there. So I did pick some of the more important articles in my opinion to discuss. And lastly, hopefully at the end of this presentation, be able to justify my recommendation and potentially your recommendation for the care of a patient on ECLS. So I wanted to start with some basics, um, really, really basic of the extracorporeal life support circuit. You will hear me say ECLS or ECMO interchangeably throughout the talk. I am referring to the same thing. So there's really a few basic components to all CLS, ECLS circuits, which is the cannula, the oxygenator, the pumps, and the connectors. And really, anytime you're doing anything new to that circuit, you are increasing your likelihood of thrombus. You're generating turbulent flow, et cetera. So some of the pictures are more of those hybrid circuits, which kind of had a little increase in popularity during COVID, where we were trying two circuits together, adding in extra oxygenators, et cetera. Really, every time you're doing that, you're just adding an additional disruptor into the interaction between the body and the ECMO circuit. I didn't want to get too much into all of the actual blood effects of that. Um, I think everyone's probably aware ECMO is not normal, so it's not fantastic for your blood in both the bleeding and thrombotic complications. So I know this picture has probably been used in, in an ECMO talk around the world probably every five minutes like other stuff. But really, your picture on the left looks like a clotted oxygenator. I'm sure everyone's dealt with one, seen one. They're ugly. They give us a little bit of shakes. And then on the right side is probably the worst thing you could ever see on your ECMO patient, representing that really bad intracerebral uh, imaging. So what does it really mean, though? All of ECMO is a balancing act of bleeding and thrombosis. So the bleeding outcomes are going to be a little higher than the thrombotic. But there's a big variation in what bleeding means on ECMO that I'll discuss a little bit later. So the percentages are widely varied at upwards of 40 to 60%. However, the most recent trial to come out with Eolia also still published a 46% bleeding rate on ECMO, showing that even in the newest stuff, people still bleed a lot. The thrombotic risk is also all over the place. So when Andy reached out and said, can we talk about VV ECMO, 
I'd love to just talk about VV ECMO, but unfortunately the literature typically lumps everything together. So to say thrombus, it really means a ton of different things, probably the most dreaded complication being that ischemic stroke on VA ECMO. So I think like most things in medicine, what's our first step, which is going to be, let's see what the guidelines recommend. And, and I really even hate to use the term guideline from this ELSO document in 2021, which one of its first lines is there's a paucity of evidence to guide management. So it doesn't do your trainees a whole lot of good to say, well, just look at the guidelines. We'll follow those because there's not much there. The guidelines do do a very nice discussion on what is heparin, what are direct thrombin inhibitors, what are the cut differences, et cetera. And they do split out VV and VA ECMO separately. Their comments on VV are a tendency towards less anticoagulation, but they're unable to go all the way to saying we should recommend anticoagulation-free strategies. For VA ECMO, and due to the extreme consequences of that thrombotic complication with the stroke risk on a VA patient, this document does say we will recommend the use of anticoagulation, and I want that to kind of be in the back of your mind as you go through some of this literature, looking at bleeding and thrombotic cases and mixing in your VAs and VVs together. But, you know, what's, what's very obviously missing from this document is which anticoagulation should you pick to take care of your patient? Bivalve, argatroban, heparin? It really doesn't make any sort of strong statement in one way or another. So I think the first thing to discuss is which one should you pick? And I think any provider that's worked with me, I know Pablo has probably heard it a million times too, I can't stand heparin. I personally think that heparin's to me about the equivalent of vancomycin. It's old, it's clunky, everyone knows it, we're used to it, so we use it, but it has a ton of shortcomings. Um, and a couple of them being it's very unpredictable dynamic effect on the body because of some of its PK differences. Heparin binds to a ton of stuff, a bunch of plasma proteins, anything positively charged, acute phase reactant proteins. So as your critical illness waxes and wanes, so do the proteins that heparin binds to. So what you can get is a really large auscultation effect of how much heparin is needed in the body to maintain therapeutic anticoagulation. I think everyone in the room probably knows the dreaded consequence of HIT. Don't need to spend too much time in that. It doesn't occur very frequently, but when it does, it's really bad. And lastly, its antithrombin-3 dependent mechanism really creates challenges in dosing and maintaining therapeutic strategies. So of those three shortcomings, number one and number two, there's really not much to do with. Number three, there are some strategies that could be used to make heparin a more uh, likable option for the ECMO patient population. You could just give them antithrombin-3 back. And if you give them AT3 back, your heparin should work better. You should have a nice stable anticoagulation and no concerns there. And it feels a little funny to say this, but here is a paper, 24 versus 24, but it was randomized. So in the ECMO literature world, this is, a, this is groundbreaking to have 24 randomized patients. But really, what did it tell you? There's no difference in how much heparin you need. There's no difference in bleeding, and there's no difference in thrombosis. So all you're really getting out of this is an additional cost of care for your patient by giving them back antithrombin-3. Or you could give them FSP, which also does contain some of those proteins, and will allow heparin to work. But if you think of that VV ECMO patient, it's typically either going to be an ARDS patient who you really don't want to give 20 mLs per kilo of FFP back to. You run the risk of taco and trolley from high volume transfusion. And lastly, like here, if you have a pre-lung transplant, you really don't want to dump in a ton of human products and risk allosensitization in those patients. So you're really out of luck. So if I'm just going to say, I'm done with heparin, what are our other options? The next big thing to go to is a direct thrombin inhibitor. Into Again, any provider knows that if you gave me a, a pulpit, I would talk about bivalirudin until the cows come home. I absolutely love the drug. Um, although I will mention some of its shortcomings because I don't want to sound overly biased during this talk. 
but some of the direct thrombin inhibitor benefits, you're not going to see HIT. It's not heparin. It doesn't have that possibility. Because of that direct binding to thrombin, you have a lot more predictable PKPD effects. So we've had patients here at our center, they've been on ECMO for 30, 60 days with as many as two to three dose titrations the entire time. Once you kind of find that dose, they just stay there. It's really nice and really easy to work with. Both bivalerudin and argatroban not only bind to bound th unbound thrombin, but also bound thrombin, which really creates that more potent anticoagulation effect you may see out of a DTI, which may drive some efficacy changes. It doesn't also rely on antithrombin-3. It's a direct acting. Um, so because of that, you don't have to worry about those changes that occur over time in a critically ill patient. And again, I will mention there are some shortcomings. No one can reverse a DTI. So if you pull the papers, the guidelines, they'll say, well, you could give factor seven. They're renally eliminated, so you could just hook them up to CRRT and dialyze it out really quickly. Um, I'm not sure about it, Maryland, but here in, in Pittsburgh, if we call renal and ask to start CRRT, that drug is going to be out of the system by the time the circuit's set up. So it really doesn't make a ton of difference. Um, your DTIs are a little more expensive. Um, one of the biggest drawbacks of bival and argatroban is its cost is sometimes tenfold higher than a bag of unfractionated heparin. And lastly, a more specific to bivalerudin is going to be the, the one drawback I can really think of, which is because it's broken down by those plasma serum esterases, it can kind of, if you lose enough stagnant blood, it's going to break itself down. Um, for if there's any cardiac anesthesiologists out there, the smoke effect going into bypass if you don't completely get it out of the heart. So there are concerns of that in the ELS patient population. What if you're on VA ECMO and you don't have a great venting strategy? Are you going to risk some LB thrombus there? What about your distant perfusion cannula that doesn't have quite those four liters of flow through it? Can this be problematic? It's a question that hasn't been completely answered, but it is something to keep in mind with bivalerudin. But I pulled up this chart here to just kind of go through the what are the two main DTIs? What are their differences? If you look at bival with a 20-minute half-life, about half of that is argatroban, and still dramatically better than the half-life of unfractionated heparin around 90 minutes. So a big win in terms of the on-off ability of bivalerudin. And one thing that we picked here is the, the urinary excretion without reliance on the liver really does make it a bit of a cleaner drug. And one of the reasons I think that the existing literature has really focused on bivalerudin over argatroban in the ECLS patient, just a little more stable, easier to deal with drug. So now say you've selected your drug and you've already said, we're going to go with direct thrombin inhibitor. You think that bivalerudin is a little bit better, but how are you going to monitor it? Um, I think monitoring is one of the bigger controversies that's currently going on right now. Um, unfortunately for this presentation, I don't want to get too far into it. Um, a lot of it's limited to even less patients than what can find in actual comparative literature. You can really get caught up in it. So I did just want to highlight a few of the differences out there as we move forward with the presentation. So ACT and APTT are functional assays. They're both looking at how long does it take that body to actually clot the blood. There's a bunch of factors. These are true, not necessarily markers of how much bival or how much heparin is in the body, just how that drug is affecting the body's coagulation ability. That's a complete contrast to the anti-10A, which is only able to be used for unfractionated heparin, which is a specific assay looking at the amount of drug in the body. It's not affected by DTIs, but it is a chromogenic assay, meaning there's other things that can affect it. It can be more hypertriglyceridemia, et cetera, but it doesn't really give you an idea of what's going on in the body's whole picture. To this degree, we also, for Pablo and I's patients in any of our lung transplants, even if they're off of ECMO, we try to avoid heparin at all costs because we think that it's going to actually swing it too far in the, the bleeding direction. 
Although in some other ECMO literature, it's really in the cardiac literature, it has improved time in therapeutic range for patients on unfractionated heparin. These three tests I'm just calling advanced. They're out there. I think they have some really interesting facts behind them. The TAG, I think, is really gaining some popularity, but it does take a little bit more to interpret. I have yet to see great protocols in terms of how to dose and kind of titrate drug based off of it, but I think it can answer questions if you have them. I'm really interested to see in the next year or two if some of the things like the ecker and clotting time and the dilute thrombin time can really help some of our monitoring on bivalorudin patients, although they're really not quite as available as I'd love them to be at our center. So for that reason, I don't think it's really worth going too far into it. So I think the next question when trying to think of this is what's going on out there in the rest of practice? So this was from a review article in 2021, and I really just wanted to highlight of these eight or nine papers that have been published out there, it's a complete mixture of VA and VV literature. They're mostly retrospective with sample sizes from 11 to 150. So I think it's hard to draw any conclusion from some of this work. And the column on the far right is it's trying to highlight that even in the last 10 to 15 years, you have different ACT goals, you have different APTT goals, you have some anti-TNA mixed in with a little bit of TAG mixed in. So how do you take what someone else has done and try to apply it to your own practice when it's really hard to even say in a review article, what is the standard of care that we can exist? So are there any true differences we could pull out? So one of the hotter topics of this is going to be that APTT and anti-10A. Um, this is only going to be an issue if you're using unfractionated heparin, again, since that anti-10A is not affected by the DTI. So this is a slide I saw from one of my friends that gave this talk at SCCM with permission. Um, it really is just showing how many different things can affect these two monitoring tests. What's challenging there is you're dealing with an extremely complex, extremely ill, critically ill patient on ECMO, and now you have to worry about all of this other stuff going on in the background. It makes it really challenging. Um, so does it really matter? Is there one test better than another? So to highlight that, there was a paper in 2021, not super big, 29 versus 12, but it did look at monitoring heparin between the two. Um, APTTs weren't as quite as good. Um, they were less time in goal range, not statistically significant, but not an overly big trial to really be able to pull that. What I highlighted in the red box, though, is even the better test here, the anti-10A, as people would like to argue, was still only within goal range 50% of the time. Um, so half the time you're not where you want your patient to be on the ECLS circuit, and is that going to push you more towards bleeding, more towards clotting, or really just a lot of auscultation going back and forth between the two options? Um, so what has been done? What's everyone else doing? It's kind of like keeping up with the Joneses argument is if someone else is doing it, maybe our center should adopt it. So this was two kind of surveys that went out to a bunch of ECLS centers across the world in 2013 and 2021. In 2013, every center that responded said that we used heparin as our primary anticoagulant, which I don't think is pretty shocking at all. Also, most of them all used ACTs, a test that here at our center, we, not even, we don't really look at anymore. I can't think of the last time I said, let's trend on ACTs as opposed to our other tests. Now, fast forward eight years, and what has really changed? 6% of centers now have moved towards bivalorudin, still meaning that heparin is by far the lion's share of all of what's out there. But interestingly, the monitoring has gone from the ACT to the anti-10A, probably because some of those studies showing that improved time and therapeutic range. The most common goal they shot for here, though, was that 0.3 to 0.7 anti-10A range, 
which is also recommended in that 2021 ELSA document and what we would consider to be full-dose anticoagulation. So we often get the question when we go talk anywhere or we get phone calls from friends, what are you guys doing at UPMC? Um, really what we did in 2017, we made a full-scale programmatic change to bivalorutin. I can think of two to three patients since 2017 that we've run on unfractionated heparin for very different reasons, but we use all APTT-based monitoring. Occasionally, we'll send a TEG if we have a question to answer, but we do not titrate. We do follow them at all. It's really just bival to PTT with a goal range of 61 to 75. So we also then get from every fellow that rotates through the CTICU, why do you guys do this? What's out there? So really, we came down to three key points. We don't ever have to worry about HIT. And I know that sounds lazy, but if you've taken care of enough patients that day three, five, and you start to see the platelets drop on therapeutic heparin, you have to work it up. And then you get a PF4 back that's right around 0.7 to 0.8, a nice indeterminate reading. So you have to wait that five days for your SRA to come back. So just remove it from the equation. Secondly, that 20-minute half-life compared to the 90-minute half-life gives us a much better time in therapeutic range. That's been shown in some really early ECMO literature that that TTR, I'll say, has really gone up and is much better in the bivalorudin. And lastly, the predictable kinetics. It's really nice to know that if I'm picking a dose, my patient's going to be able to stay at that dose and maintain on that dose. Which brings me into the idea of why is there controversy? Um, I don't know from you can interpret what I've said. It seems pretty easy to not use heparin and to just go to all bivalorudin. But people like to practice evidence-based medicine, and it's hard to practice that without good literature. So why is there not good literature? There's no protocol that goes standard across center to center, or often even patient to patient. When there is a study that's published, typically you can see a 120, 150 we would consider a big study, and that's a mixture of a multitude of different patient populations, not necessarily all one homogenous group. And then lastly, from even our center on a Monday to our center on a Tuesday, let alone a center across the world, what techniques are being used, what pumps are being used, what cannulas are being used can all play a role. So the two controversies I wanted to highlight is what is the optimal anticoagulant? And then again, a little bit later, what's the ideal regimen to get them there? So I like to consider this three group study, the, the early studies. You can see this is the early 2010s, really small group, but really kind of paved the way for the idea of bivalorudin can be used on the ECMO circuit. None of these ever went to try to find that it was a superior drug, obviously, but they really were able to demonstrate that benefit in time and therapeutic range, getting patients therapeutic and keeping them therapeutic faster. They didn't have a ton of benefit in terms of patient outcomes, but again, that's going to be very challenging and a really small study. Which brings me into what I call the next wave. And these are the papers that I'm gonna go through a little bit more depth. So this was a paper that we just came out from our center's work in critical care medicine. And so what we did is we looked at all of our patients from 2013 until 2020, all adult patients, all VV ECMO patients. We ended up with 162 heparins to 133 bivalorudins, and we actually excluded all patients that received both anticoagulants. Please keep in mind that we do go on ECMO more often than not with heparin, but after that, everyone had to be on the other drug. So kind of going through each of these papers that I wanted to cover, I wanna highlight some differences. That's tending to be what I'm going to put in the red boxes. So here you can see that over time, we really shifted from that early center phase of a lot of pre-lung transplant, more towards a lot of true VV ECMO for ARDS and a more medical population as opposed to a surgical population. 
So what did we find? Um, so the figure on the left was our Kaplan-Meier curve. That I think is a, as a picture is worth a thousand words. You can see from the first day of ECMO until following these patients out 75 days, bivalirudin had an improved probability of no clot at every single time point, and this was very highly statistically significant. We then also did want to overcome some of the challenges of a retrospective study that we didn't look at TTR. We had changes in patient population, but even when we put it into the Cox regression, you can see that the receipt of heparin was associated with a 2.3-fold risk increase of in-circuit thrombosis, which is relatively strong. The only other predictor was a surgical admission. Now, the other side of that thrombotic coin is always going to be bleeding. And so I spend a little bit of time here with, we saw dramatic, nearly three to four-fold differences in all the blood product administered. And I think it's one of the critiques as you read a lot of this literature is, well, did transfusion practices change over seven years? Did your surgeons want more higher blood goals for certain patient populations? And they very well might have. Um, so I think one way we tried to get around that was also including the major bleeding events. And for that, we saw a reduction of 41% down to 12% of major bleeding events in the bivalorudin cohort, and that was per ELSO criteria of major bleeding events. Then lastly, we did see, and we wanted to look at the holistic approach, so what was our survival to ECMO decannulation as well as one-year post-decannulation. We did reach statistical significance, but I think it's hard to really prove at this point that bivalorudin on our manuscript was associated with that true mortality benefit. We also did some subgroups analyses, and these results helped through all of our subgroups, including early anticoagulation, admission type, and receipt of transplantation. The next study to cover was from Seelhammer and colleagues in the Mayo Clinic, and, and this was a really, really nice paper. They had a substantially bigger sample size than us. They looked at adults, they looked at peds separately, and, and for the sake of conversation, I'm going to stick primarily in the adult section here. Um, but they did look at a mixed cohort of VA and VZ patients, 223 versus another 110 of bivalorudin, so a nice sample size of almost 350. And a little bit different than us, their primary endpoint was looking at mortality, which again is pretty unique in the ECMO literature with just an anticoagulation difference. The biggest variation between our study and their study is they had a ton of postcardiotomy ECMO, um, which was not really seen because we only were looking at DV in our cohort. So looking at the results, whenever they lumped all of their circuit interventions together, there was an odds ratio of supporting bivalorudin, but not quite statistically significant. Um, I do think it's important to note here that their ECMO duration was only about five days. So I do think that as you start to prolong the ECMO run is really when you're starting to risk some additional things. So did they not see that potentially because their study was shorter in terms of ECMO duration? It's impossible to know at this point in time. But I don't want to take away from, for the first time, they were able to demonstrate that reduction in mortality in the bivalorudin group with an odds ratio of 0.39 in an adult pop patient population. This was pretty exciting and one of the first times I think mortality has ever been really big enough to pull out. So this was nice. And then I thought, let's keep going. Let's see what's the most recent one. So this is from Guiano and colleagues at Johns Hopkins down the road from you guys. But from 2016 to 2019, not a ton of bivalorudin patients in their cohort, only 13, but unlike both our paper and the Seelhammer paper, they didn't make a programmatic switch. They were still running all of their patients on heparin and only switched to bivalorudin whenever there was a concern for HIT. So I thought this was a unique twist. Again, this was a mostly VA ECMO cohort. And again, I apologize, we were supposed to talk only about VV, but it just doesn't work quite as well as I wanted it to. So what did they see? 
when you looked at all of their actual patient-centered endpoints, they didn't find really any differences. But it's, again, a challenge when you're only comparing against 13 patients. But they did st still show a near tripling of blood product administered in the heparin group compared to the bivalirudin group. And the last of these that I wanted to cover was from the University of Kentucky and Erica Sheridan and her colleagues out there, which lumped, again, VA and VV together. The most recent of them with only 2017 to 2020, 150 total patients, they were unable to find any difference in bleeding and thrombosis. Granted, their definitions were substantially different than other definitions of bleeding and thrombosis, which could have been their overall low rate of both events. But going back to that early studies, they did find a dramatic benefit in both time and therapeutic range, time to therapeutic, and number of dose titrations needed in the bivalirudin group. So a little bit curious that those results didn't translate to more patient-centered outcomes. So this was just a little summary chart that I wanted to put together of all of those four papers that I just covered. The only thing I wanted to talk about was looking at the anticoagulation targets. And you can see here's four published papers all within the last one to two years, all targeting different levels of anticoagulation, all using different markers to determine that. So even pulling those together is a bit of a challenge. Luckily, someone decided to do that for us and publish a meta-analysis on those results. So this is the forest plot of hospital mortality of ECMO patients on heparin versus bivalirudin. As it's currently presented, there's about 600 patients included in their study. Unfortunately, they did not include our study in this because we only reported out the survival to ECMO decannulation, and this was a forest plot of survival to hospital discharge, so not quite there. This was also published a little bit before the Johns Hopkins experience as well as the Sheridan experience. So it got to thinking, what if we added them in? We could take that sample size from 600 patients up to 1,200 patients. And just doing a little Fisher's exact test on that, what you can see there is that the mortality in the heparin group was nearing 50%, while the mortality in the bivalirudin group was only at 40%, and that was statistically significant on a lumped together group of over 1,000 patients. So I thought that was a pretty interesting way to look at this. But I think you still need to take a step back and say, what is the best endpoint for these patients? Obviously, I think as critical care people, mortality is fantastic, but we know that mortality is very difficult to prove, especially in an active controls type paper. Does thrombosis matter? I think yes, but is it a DVT after the ECMO cannulas are pooled? Is it a circuit that needs to be exchanged? It's really hard to tell. Is bleeding better proven in terms of a major bleed, blood product administered, or should we just be focused on cost? So they want to look at mortality and say, what if we said 95% confidence, 80% power, those are the rates we just found, we would need a sample size of 487 patients. To put that in perspective, the EOA trial recruited patients from 2012 until 2017 and were able to enroll 250 patients and stopped because they couldn't reach enrollment. So to get a sample of that big and that homogenous to prove mortality, I think will be a really big challenge. So what about cost? So here are three papers that did report out cost. Again, in 21, 44, and 32, not a lot of sample sizes there, not a lot of statistically significant p-values. Some looked at days of therapy. Some looked at total cost of hospitalization. It's really back and forth. I don't want to make too many conclusions off of that. But because of that, I do want to say, as is mentioned, bivalirudin costs a lot more money than a fractionated heparin. So in 2020, we were approached by our ICU service center that said, you guys are spending a ton of money on this drug. You need to justify why you're doing it. So this was a little bit of back of napkin calculations we put together to send them. 
And the assumptions that this was based off our VV ECMO paper, and this was based off 2020 volumes and those percentages of bivalve receptor that I reported in our study. If you did the math all out, and I'm, I'm not allowed to tell you how much things cost here, um, but if you do all of it across, you can see is bivalve cost us about $150,000 more than unfractionated heparin in 2020. But what if you lump all of that cost of care together? There is a dramatic benefit of almost doubling of cost of unfractionated heparin because of the blood clot administration, because of the circuit thrombus that dramatically offsets the cost of bivalirudin. And potentially that could be our bigger selling point across the world. So the last question I get from the fellows all the time is why? Why? You're just still anticoagulating a circuit. Why does it make that much of a difference? So these are the four points that I always like to run through with them. I think that the ability to bind to bound and unbound thrombin dramatically improves the efficacy and the preservation of the circuit, as well as the patient's ability to form, not form clot. It has reversible binding with really quick on-off. Is that the reason for decreased bleeding? Potentially it is. If a bleeding is starting and you stop bivalirudin, in 40 minutes, it's more than likely no longer causing an effect, as opposed to that two to three hours of unfractionated heparin. Is this all driven by that time and therapeutic range? Going to those early studies that couldn't find patient benefit, but still found the therapeutic range, is now whenever in our manuscript and in Sealhammer's manuscript, as you're starting to build the N up, is that true clinical difference starting to come across of that time and therapeutic range? Unfortunately, in our manuscript, we were unable to capture that, so we did not have it in our VV cohort, but we had looked at it internally. We also found that bival was more often therapeutic. And lastly, is that it's a challenge to say, how does one drug cause less bleeding and less thrombosis? It doesn't make a ton of sense. So our best guess there is that if you start with bleeding and then you're holding anticoagulation and you're transfusing blood product, are you actually then swinging that patient's coagulation profile into a more prothrombotic state? So does bleeding actually generate clotting? It's hard to tell, but that's one of the theories that we think is why bivalirudin has routinely outperformed heparin in some of these more recent studies. So lastly, moving into our second controversy to discuss, is anticoagulation necessary for the ECMO patient? I think in a perfect world, we would all want the answer to be yes. Um, I can think of very little scenarios where I say, I really wish I could anticoagulate this patient. I really hope I can make the bleeding risk go up, but it always comes with a cost of thrombosis. So to go back into those 2021 recommendations, what are you left with? You're left with a tendency towards less anticoagulation for the VV patient, but they're not quite there. Um, they do say they're really anxiously awaiting the results of some two randomized trials to hopefully answer those questions. And the two trials that they mention are subcutaneous heparin versus standard care IV heparin. One of those is trying to recruit 40 patients and the other is trying to recruit 100 patients. And I will never sneeze at an RCT in an ECMO patient population, but I don't know that I'm quite ready to say that a 50 versus 50 paper is really going to dramatically change my practice. So I think we're going to be still stuck with what has retrospectively been done, what happens when we lump a bunch of papers together. And this was what was done out of ASAIO in 2021 that looked at anticoagulation versus no anticoagulation, a systematic review. Altogether, they had 34 publications they were able to include, and even getting 34 pubs, that only left them with 201 patients, a relatively even split between VV and VA ECMO patients. But unfortunately, of that, only 73 of those 200 patients were actually intended to be anticoagulation-free ECMO runs. The rest of them are anticoagulation-free because the patient had already experienced a bleeding event or was deemed to be a too high risk of bleed. So I don't know that it's truly an evaluation of protocolized AC versus no AC. 
and the average run was only about five days. So their composite endpoints when looking at all anticoagulation-free ECMO still generated a 23% thrombotic rate. Um, of the arterial clots, those were mostly their VA ECMO patients that had LV thrombus and ischemic stroke, and a 33% bleeding rate. But I always say, that's great. It's nice to have a good composite of a good systematic review, but if you're not comparing it to anything, how can you really tell that anticoagulation-free is an acceptable strategy? So what they decided to do in this manuscript is they generated their own comparison group from pulling out two old systematic reviews as well to say this is going to be our comparator anticoagulation group. The two systematic reviews they used were one from 2013 and one from 2017. And again, just like everything else I've mentioned, you have one that's VV, you have one that's VA, and it's great, you have 2,000 patients, but they're not 2,000 patients that look alike. In the 2013 paper, we're a decade past that now. So we all know that at that point, a lot of our strategies have changed. Our equipment has changed. And it's difficult to truly know what that means in today's practice. So the next two slides are their charts that they put together looking at it. And I know they're small, and I always have said I'm never going to give a presentation and say, don't look at the slides. I know the answers are small. What I wanted to focus on is you can see that there's a ton of non-applicables. It really means that even in this and pulling this together, they all looked at different types of bleeding and different types of clotting. So it's really challenging to say, here's what's happened over the past 20 years with slightly different definitions of bleeding and thrombosis. But it, nonetheless, what you can see is that no anticoagulation had a little bit higher percentage of thrombosis than the anticoagulated group, which I don't think is that much of a surprise. But you're not seeing a dramatic difference. And depending on what type of thrombosis you're looking for, no anticoagulation actually looked a little inferior to anticoagulation. Looking at bleeding, again, you're seeing not much difference. Um, looking at all anticoag versus all non-anticoag, bleeding rates are still both around 30%, which I think brings into question, if you have a potential thrombotic benefit and no difference in bleeding benefit, maybe the, the no anticoagulation freeze is not quite right. So one paper was actually missing out of this, and this was the, sorry, my computer froze for a sec. Um, the Kahari paper um, in the Annals of Thoracic Surgery in 2020 that didn't make it in. And this was all VV ECMO patients. They looked at 36 for 36, about 1,000 ECMO days. And what did they see? They saw a dramatic reduction in GI bleeding, as well as a dramatic reduction in oxygenator exchange in the group that did not get anticoagulation. So I do wonder if this, again, leads a little credence into the idea of those patients that are having bleeding and then getting product is that what's driving the additional thrombotic complication that exists there. They also looked at mortality. Unfortunately, they were unable to find any difference in mortality. As you can see, very early in the ECMO days, the curves flip over one another. So they didn't just completely go anticoagulation-free, though, and they also had some other risk mitigation strategies that I think are worth mentioning for anyone considering that plan. All of their circuits were anticoagulation-bonded, they tried to maintain flows at least at three and a half liters, and actually in their manuscript found that more often than not, they were closer to four to four and a half liters of flow throughout their entire ECMO durations. And all patients received 5,000 Q8 of sub-Q heparin if they were in the no anticoagulation group. So based off this available literature, me and my practice, I, I'm not quite ready to say let's cut out all anticoagulation from all of our patients. So I think that goes to kind of controversy two point B, which is, is there a happy medium that we can reach? So here's four papers that I wanted to cover, um, looking at the idea of what is the difference between anticoagulation targets. If we're not ready to say no anticoag, can we say less anticoagulation could be the answer? 
So the first one is from Carter and colleagues in 2019, and they considered a heparin sparing goal of 140 to 180 ACT compared to full heparin of 180 to 220, um, which is similar to the early 2014 anticoagulation guidelines from ELSO, which said you really need 180 to 220 to be fully anticoagulated on support. So they did a pre-post, but they also had patients that went back and forth between groups depending on their bleeding risk. They had a ton of, 14 of their 40 patients were trauma patients that were deemed to not need anticoagulation because of the bleeding risk. There was an average eight-day run of ECMO. And I think interestingly, too, the median difference of the ACTs was 167 versus 189. So you're not actually seeing a dramatic difference in the level of anticoagulation, despite the slight difference in the target goals. So what they were able to see was really it didn't make a ton of difference. Um, again, it's going to be hard looking at 22 versus 18, but there was nothing that really jumped out across the paper of one strategy being better or worse than the other. Which moves into the next paper of Seelinger and colleagues in 2020, and here I think is probably one of the first true separations of the goals. You have an ACT goal of 140 to 180 compared to an APTT goal of 35 to 40. To me, uh, an APTT of 35 to 40 is kind of around the lines of DVT prophylaxis. So you can use IV heparin to get there, but to me, that's almost like a 500 units an hour fixed dose rate. You're not really trying to anticoagulate that patient. You just want them a little bit thin. This study used all VV patients. Um, they had a median ACT in the ACT group of 158 compared to a median PTT of 38 in the other group. The oxygenator change rate, I think, is really interesting here. So they found 11% of patients needed an oxygenator exchanged in the ACT group compared to a near tripling in that group that was only a PTT of 35 to 40. This was an average ECMO run of about eight days. And what I think is a good takeaway here is early on in that ECMO run, it doesn't look to be like a whole lot of different in circuit thrombosis. But as you start to separate out and hit that seven days of ECMO mark, I think you can really see the benefit of the anticoagulation in the ECMO circuit. So as we've all gone through, we were talking a little bit before the presentation started of COVID ECMO and how long these patients are on ECMO. I think you can start to see the longer you leave a patient unanticoagulated, potentially is that where your benefit starts to really shine through. So again, RCT, so I'm going to have to talk about it. Two-center parallel group, they looked at a PTT of less than 45 compared to a PTT of 50 to 70. Feasibility study, the only shot to hit 32 patients. And even with that, that's about a 30% inclusion rate of all of their screened patients. So potentially not the most kind of all-inclusive cohort. But looking at what they saw, you can see on the figure on the left how close and far away the APTTs were and their anti-10As were. Um, all heparin study, but not a ton of separation. Still all of the APTTs less than around that 60 to 65. So no one in this group really got that true, true therapeutic levels of anticoagulation. And looking at their outcomes, they again showed that patients that were therapeutic on anticoagulation required a lot more blood product. Almost 94% required blood product. When you go down to the bleeding episodes, there's really not a difference that actually occurred there. Really just patients getting transfused and no difference in circuit thrombosis, but again, 25% versus 13% in a study of 32, it's hard to tell if that would have been different if you had kind of continued out with a larger study. Which leads me to the last of this little subsection, and I think, and not just saying it because it was done at Maryland, but a really interesting idea here was looking at three different anticoagulation goals across anticoagulation eras at the center. 
So over time, they had moved from ACTs to high-dose APTTs to low-dose APTTs. And the low-dose and the lowest they would go was a PTT of 45 to 55. I also really enjoyed that they looked at bleeding and, and thrombotic episodes over 100 ECMO days as opposed to just the ends because it does allow that, that gauge of what's going on over time. The medium PTTs and the highs and the lows were 48 for 60. So a little bit of separation there, about a 12 second difference between low and high. And moving into their outcomes. So what were they able to demonstrate was a reduction in major bleeding events. So not just blood products, but actual bleeding events in the low dose PTT group. They were also able to show some differences in oxygenator exchanges. And it's kind of difficult to pull out of here looking at the medians because everything looks like zeros. There's probably not a ton. Um, but here's a little bit of evidence saying 45 to 55 looks like a pretty reasonable goal for the ECMO patient. So what are my overall takeaway points here? Controversy number one, is there a preferred anticoagulant? To me, the literature cannot say that bivalve is superior. It's all retrospective. It's all heterogeneous. What I can really confidently say in my practice, bivalorudin has got to be at least as safe, at least as efficacious as unfractionated heparin without some of the shortcomings and burdens of using heparin. I think a true in-depth cost analysis looking not only at med costs, but the cost of labs, the cost of circuits, the cost of oxygenators, et cetera, may settle that because I don't know that we're ever going to get a nice big randomized sample of 500 patients to truly answer this question. So controversy number two, if you believe me in number one and you're ready to go bivalve on all of your patients, do you need it? How much of it do you need? At this point in time, I don't feel that anticoagulation-free ECMO is really there. I think there could be a role in that trauma patient, that patient that may have a head bleed, but I don't think it's ready for a kind of prime time protocolized no AC. There's mixed results in low dose, but I think it's mixed because no one really knows how low you can go. And it looks like less than 40 didn't really work. It looks like 45 to 55 maybe a nice sweet spot where you're preventing circuit thrombus, but also decreasing your bleed rate. But one of the more important things here is all of those doses and all of the what is your goal PTT when you're lowering it is all in heparin. So there really hasn't been any work done on what are the different goals of a bivalorudin-based patient. Would we see even more benefit at that 45 to 55 if it was all on bival? So what did we do with all this literature and what is our current practice now, kind of five years after we started the bivalve practice? We still use bivalve for all of our ECMO. We still utilize it in all patients unless there's a contraindication. Our nomogram starts very low. We start our patients at 0.02 of bivalorudin, which is about tenfold less than the standard starting dose for a HIT patient. We run our goal of 61 to 75, and we tend to say we're okay if it takes two to three days to get there. We don't rush to get to therapeutic as fast as we possibly can. And lastly, I think even in the last couple of years or two, um, and really Pablo probably brought this with him from Maryland with us, is we've had a, a lot bigger idea of it's okay to not be on anticoagulation. If you have a little bit of a GI bleed or you have some hemoptysis, it's okay to stay off. I think five to seven years ago, we all got a little more scared about holding it. We didn't really know what to do there. So I think the biggest current practice to take away from what we do is the idea of individualized patient care on ECMO. Some patients that maybe have a PE or you can see that their circuit's getting a little crappy or they're in AFib, anticoagulate them. Go with a nice low goal and you'll be okay. Your patient that's out of the OR and a little oozy, don't start it for a couple of days. It's okay. We can all get there. We just need to take a little bit of break from the idea of true protocolized full-dose anticoagulation from every single ECMO patient that comes through. 
So the last piece I wanted to cover is what are our applications beyond VV ECMO? Um, so I know I lumped in a lot of VV and VA together over the course of this talk, but what about true VA? So the big concern was always the low flow state and left ventricle. Um, so here is the paper that we recently put out um, looking at all VA ECMO for cardiogenic shock. We wanted to target cardiogenic shock with bivalve because in a true post-cardiotomy group, I think you still probably squeeze a little more towards the bleeding pathway as opposed to the true thrombotic pathway instead of that really non-functioning LV in a cardiogenic shock group. So we saw in 54 bivalve patients versus 89 heparin patients was still that reduction in thrombosis per day. What was really interesting we found is that that wasn't driven by the circuit anymore. Our circuit thrombosis rates were nearly identical between the bivalve and the heparin group. We were driven by ischemic stroke. So we actually caused less stroke in the bivalorudin group, even though there are those concerns about that stagnant blood flow in the left ventricle. We saw an additional survival to decannulation in the bivalve group, but I don't want to harp on that too much because we are in a little bit smaller study and I don't think it's anywhere than an idea generation at this point. And the figure on the right with the Kaplan that we were able to generate is really showing that benefit still starting in about post, uh, post cannulation day two, post cannulation day three. So these patients didn't need to be anticoagulated for five to seven days to really see the benefit. Maybe that early anticoagulation in the VA patient is a little more beneficial while that LV is starting to recover and it's getting upvoted. Some caveats to this literature, we are a, a big impella center as well. So a lot of these patients were also on quote unquote expella with LV venting. So that may have changed some of the results and applicability to other practices. So what about the impella literature? So I think the standard had always been systemat systematic impella as well as a heparin purge. So heparin and heparin. So there's been a bigger shift from our cardiac surgery group, which says, I don't want heparin in these patients before they undergo an LVAD surgery or before they undergo heart transplant to reduce the risk of hit postoperatively. So we moved to a fully systemic bivalorudin with a sodium bicarbonate purge for all of our Impella 5.5s. This includes if they're on VA ECMO or not on VA ECMO. So we have a manuscript currently under review on these patients. We did it in 34 patients. You can see their characteristics there. There's no comparator group, which we're well aware of, but we saw no issues of device failure. We saw no issues of device thrombosis. We had a couple problems with stroke, but I think that's anytime you have stagnant flow in the left ventricle, but all of those rates of stroke are right online with the published literature for unfractionated heparin. Um, and this is actually very recently in us submitting this data to Abiomed with a bunch of other centers. The bicarbonate purge solution is now FDA approved, showing that you can remove heparin from that impella circuit and still provide safe care to the patient. And lastly, I'm not really sure exactly where the ECOR is going to go. I don't know if it's going to get bigger, if it's going to get smaller. Um, but we've done a couple here in the last year, and every time we've done them, we've run them on our standard VV ECMO protocols with 5-alarudin with the PTT goal of 61 to 75. So this was a case report that Pablo and his surgical colleagues wrote up looking at a 29-year-old female who was listed for redo double lung and trying to get her kind of prehabbed for her lung transplant. Um, Pablo had placed a, a hemolung into the patient to really help the patient mobilize throughout the course of it. There was an eight-day pre-transplant run on the hemolung, anticoagulated with 5-alarudin the entire time. The two figures are right out of his case report looking at how well the device functioned. I thought that was probably the best marker of 5-alarudin protecting the device over time, and we really had no circuit-related issues for that entire run. So who really knows what the future is going to completely hold? Um, I think 
who knows, maybe Bivalve overtakes heparin, and I'm a, a really happy pharmacist for the rest of my career. It's impossible to know, but I think there's definitely going to be applications of Bivalarudin moving forward. So with that, I would be remiss to not acknowledge everyone that's kind of also helped with a lot of this work. Um, so on the picture on the left is a little bit of our multidisciplinary team represented by Perfusion, Pharmacy, our CCM attendings, cardiac surgery, some of our ECMO fellows, as well as our nursing staff. Um, none of this work would be possible without them. Um, everyone's really bought into the nomogram, bought into the bivalarudin, and really pulled together to be able to pull out a bunch of these publications that I was able to talk about today. The, on the right is Dr. Penny Sappington, who back in 2017 supported the mission to say we should switch everyone to bivalarudin. So it was back then that her and I had built the nomogram that we still practice on today. Um, so without her help, I don't think we would be where we are with our practice right now. So that is all I had, and I'm happy for all of your attention. Thank you for having us. And I know Pablo is also on the line, happy to say anything else or take any questions that you may have.